one thing you should probably know about me. It gives me an opportunity to tell you a little something about me. I happen to actually really like Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat by Andrew Lloyd Webber. I've seen the show. I have the CD. It's on my iPod. And I cannot read through Genesis 37 through 50 without singing those songs. And I don't know if that makes you think less of me or more of me, but that doesn't really matter. It gives me a chance to tell you something about me. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Andy, and I am on the leadership team here, but I am not the pastor, and I am not the normal preacher. So I will do the best I can. I have a sermon that I think is a lot of introduction. It's a lot of summary. It's a lot of academic stuff. But if you stay with me until the last 10 minutes or so, I think I have a word that the Lord wants me to bring to you and to me that I think is really important that we can pull from this passage. So let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Joseph. We thank you for the Abrahamic covenant and your, your love for your people. We thank you that you have set aside a people to be called to you and that through Christ we can be counted in that group. Lord, I pray that you would be honored and glorified as your word is preached. I pray that you would help me to be true to the text and really bring a message that you would have people to hear. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come and to worship you. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in what we offer. We ask these things in the name of our risen Savior. Amen. Well, probably most of you who are not younger than me know the term hatchet man. A hatchet man is someone who is set to do the dirty work for somebody. They're set to prop up an organization or to tear down their enemies. And in the Watergate scandal, there was a hatchet man for President Nixon. His name was Charles Colson. He was known as the hatchet man. He did a lot of dirty things. Well, in 1973, he actually became a Christian. He gave his life to the Lord. And the Boston Globe, of all publications, published something that said, if Mr. Colson can repent of his sins, there just has to be hope for everybody. In 1974, he pled guilty to obstruction of justice, and he agreed to serve a one- to three-year sentence in a federal prison. He went and entered federal prison as a new believer, and he ended up spending seven months there before he was released. And God totally changed his life. He came out with a passion for prison ministry, a passion to rally the church, to mobilize and serve those who were in prison, and to be an advocate for those who were in prison for their rights. And that's how he's known by most people today. He died about four years ago, but he's known as a Christian, as an author, as someone who cared about people in prison. And that story may not seem like it has much to do with what we're preaching about today, what uh, Jeremy read for us. But I think if you stay with me till the end, you'll see that it probably does. I want to take the time because I think it's important to catch us up on where we've been. We preached on a few chapters in Genesis, but we skipped a whole bunch of chapters too. So I want to take the chance to do that because I don't know that everybody here is familiar with the whole story of Genesis. And if you're not, even my summary is going to fall short. Some of you saw the uh, Bible Project videos that we showed a couple of times. One for Genesis 1 through 11, I think, and one for 12 through 50. Those are good, but they're still incomplete. I would encourage you to read the scriptures, especially 37 through 50 reads like a novel. I mean, you probably won't be able to put it down once you start reading it. But if we look back in chapter 12, it's when we're first introduced to Abram. Abram is chosen by God out of random, well, as far as we know, out of random, God obviously chose him, to start a people, a nation that would be devoted to God. He chose Abram, and in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, it says, 
I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Chapters 13 and 14, we see Abram part ways with his nephew Lot, and then Abram rescue Lot from a terrible situation he was in. And then we come to chapter 15. We had a guest preacher, Terry Shanahan. Jonathan and I were both on vacation. But Terry preached Genesis 15. That's where we see God come and renew and formalize his covenant with Abram. He comes down and does a very unusual thing for the greater party in a covenant. He's the one who makes the promise. He's the one that walks between the animals. They took animals, they cut them in half, laid them on either side, and God walks through, not Abram. God's basically saying, if I don't do what I've told you I'm going to do, may I be like those animals, may I be torn in two. That's really unusual. In the ancient Near East, when people entered into covenants, it was not the more powerful person who walked through the animals. It was always the lesser person that walked through the animals that said, I will keep this or else. But in this case, God does it. But there's something very interesting that I don't think was focused on when that chapter was preached. In Genesis 15, 13, and 14, God begins his covenant by saying this, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You know, if I'm Abram, I'm thinking, wait a minute, God, just a little while ago, you told me you were going to make me great. You were going to make my name great. You were going to make my descendants as numerous, you know, too numerous to count. Why do they have to be enslaved? Why do they have to be mistreated for 400 years? Just seems like a strange way to start a covenant, you know? I guess it just goes to, to prove that God's ways are not necessarily our ways. We can't necessarily figure out what he's doing. But keep those verses in mind. I think a lot of people skip over them, but they're important to what we're looking at as we start the story of Joseph. We didn't look at Genesis 16 at all, um, but there's some sin in there where Abram and Sarah take matters into their own hands. They've been waiting a little while, probably about 11 years or so, God hasn't given him a son. So Sarah says, why don't you take my, my maidservant and sleep with her? And he does, he agrees, and they have a son named Ishmael. But God comes back in chapter 17, and Jonathan preached on this, and he gives Abram the sign of circumcision. He renews his covenant with him again. And he makes it really clear to Abram that he's going to give him a son through Sarah, Ishmael is not the one that's going to carry this covenant, but it's going to be a son he has with Sarah, and he's going to name him Isaac. Our next sermon was on chapter 22, so we skipped a few chapters there from 18 through 21. There's a lot of great things that happen in there that I don't have time to tell you about. I do encourage you to read it. Abraham is visited, by the way, Abram and Sarah are now Abraham and Sarah, and Abraham is visited by the Lord, it says. There's a lot of speculation about who these people were, angels. Was it uh, a pre-incarnate Jesus? Was it God himself? But he has an actual discussion there with him. He pleads for Sodom and Gomorrah. In those chapters, we see Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. We see Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt. All kinds of things happen. And at the end of those chapters, Ishmael and Hagar are sent away. And that's a pattern we see a lot where a non-covenant child that's had with somebody other than the wife they were supposed to have a child with is sent away to protect the covenant. 
Chapter 22 was last week's sermon. So if you were here, Jonathan preached on that, and that's a very famous story of Abraham being tested by God. He tests him by asking him to go and sacrifice Isaac, his one and only son, that is going to have the covenant fulfilled through. But Abraham passes the test. He heads up onto the mountain to sacrifice Isaac. And at the last moment, God stops him and provides a ram that's caught in the thicket nearby. And they sacrifice the, the ram instead. Well, there's a lot of chapters between 22, where we preached on last week, and 37 that we're looking at today. 22 through 36, obviously. And a lot happens there. And if you'll bear with me, I want to fill you in on some of it. In chapter 23, Sarah dies. Abraham buys a field and a cave and buries Sarah there. And that's the plan is to bury the other descendants there as well as things go on. Abraham sees that it's important for Isaac to marry somebody from their own tribe. So he arranges for that to happen. He sends his servant out, and there's a pretty intricate story about how that happens, where he goes to a well and he meets Rebecca, and Isaac and Rebecca get married. And Isaac and Rebecca have twins. And this is Esau and Jacob. Esau is the older one, Jacob comes out second, but God says to Rebecca, You have two nations in your womb, and the younger will be the one that leads. The older will serve the younger. That's important to remember as well. We'll talk about that again a little later. Another interesting thing happens in there is that both Abram in chapter 20, which we kind of glossed over, and Isaac in chapter 23, both have an interaction with Kim, King Abimelech, and both lie to say that their wife is their sister because they're afraid that they'll be killed so that somebody else can take their wife as their wife because she was so beautiful. It's really interesting to me that we have these two like exact stories. Both times the king finds out, he's angry with them. Why wouldn't you tell me this was your wife? And, but both times the king then protects them and lets them stay in the land for a while. Very interesting and a, and a parallel there. Well, Jacob and Esau are interesting. And Esau is a really a man's man. His father loves him. In that sense, he likes to hunt. He likes to cook tasty game, and one time he comes back from hunting, and he's really hungry, and he sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Yet another sin that we see in these stories, yet another bad decision being made by God's people. And then a little later, we see Rebecca and Jacob get together and conspire to trick Isaac into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. He puts on a disguise, a hairy disguise, so he'll be thought of as Esau. Apparently, Isaac couldn't see very well anymore, and they steal the blessing. Esau comes back, and he's very angry, as he probably should be. His blessing was stolen, and he plots to kill Jacob. So Rebekah sends Jacob away. He's going to go live with her brother, his uncle, Laban. On his way there, he has a dream in Bethel, where God promises him that land, and he gives him basically the same covenantal promise he gave to Abraham. says he's going to make him a great nation, many people. He's going to bless him and bless the world through him, and that that land is going to be his, the land in Bethel. Well, he goes, and he lives with Laban, and if you know that story, he wants to marry Rachel. Rachel's very beautiful. Jacob loves her, and Laban says, well, if you work for seven years, I'll give you Rachel. So he works for seven years, and Laban tricks him, and he marries Leah. And the next day, he says, what the heck? I thought I was supposed to marry Rachel. 
He says, yeah, well, we don't give the older, we always give the older daughter first. You can have Rachel too for another seven years of work. So he works for another seven years. So that's 14 years. And he actually stays there for 20 more years after that. For 34 years, he stays there. And both Rachel and Leah and each of their maidservants all have children with Isaac. I'm sorry, with Jacob. And so that's where we start to see it becoming a nation. He has 11 sons while he's there living with Laban, the last of which is Joseph, the last of the 11. And then he decides he needs to leave from Laban and, and, and go back and separate himself. Another interesting story there, full of trickery and deceit, full of lies. It's really amazing how much these stories are full of violence, of lies, of trickery, of deceit. God's people are certainly far from perfect. Well, he heads back. There's even some more bad things that happen. He settles in Canaan. That's not the land that God promised him. He promised him Bethel. One of his daughters there is defiled by a local guy. Two of the brothers take matters into their own hands, kill that entire tribe. Jacob is afraid that everybody's going to gang up on them. So they leave and they finally go to Bethel, the land that God promised him. Before he does that, Jacob finally makes a good decision and he cleanses the household of idols, of false gods. And they move to Bethel and he remembers that covenant that God made with him to be his God, the God of his father and his grandfather. And he goes on his way back to these lands. He also meets Esau. You see that reunion. It goes a lot better than you might think. And Isaac dies, and Jacob and Esau actually bury him together. And that kind of brings us up to chapter 37. Sorry for the, the long introduction. I thank you, uh, Jeremy, for reading that long chapter. I'm not going to reread it. I'm going to spare you that. The reason I wanted to recap this story is because I think it's really important. This is our story as Christians. It's not just some story in Genesis that you know, may or may not be literally true, that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. This is the start of God's covenant people. And Paul says in Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That means us. That means as Christians, we are Abraham's seed. These are our stories. These are our descendants. This is how God's people became a nation. Well, I had the privilege of studying the Abrahamic covenant when I took a class on Genesis. And I thought, boy, this is going to be a really kind of academic and intellectual exercise that's not going to really have a lot of bearing on my life. But when I studied the Abrahamic covenant, I didn't, besides learning the academic portions of it, I learned that through studying these things, you actually learn a lot about God, a lot about the character of God. I learned that God is relational. We see him talking with Abraham. We see him talking with Isaac. We see him talking with Jacob. We actually see in, in Genesis 18 and 19, long conversation between God and Abraham. We actually saw that all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We saw it with Cain and Abel. God came and he talked with his people. He wanted to interact with them. I learned that God is self-sufficient. It took God 25 years to fulfill that first piece of the covenant with Abraham, to give him a son that would fulfill the covenant. 25 years, why? Not because God couldn't have done it the next day, 
but because anybody who knew about that promise, anybody who was witness to that, anyone who saw the birth, when a woman who has been barren her whole life gives birth at the age of 100, I don't think you can give credit to anybody but God. I mean, God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need Sarah and Abraham to decide to bring in another woman because it's not working out. God will take care of it. I learned that God is self-sufficient. Learned that he's faithful and trustworthy. We see throughout these, this recap I did six times, no fewer than six times, six very obvious times, God renews his covenant with Abraham. God keeps encouraging his people to trust him. You see, in the Garden of Eden, the sin was that they didn't trust God. They didn't believe that he had their best interests in heart. He didn't, they didn't believe that eating of that tree wasn't best for them. And so God is working to repair that relationship. God is making that step out. He is trying to establish trust. And so each time they screw up, God comes down and restates the covenant. I am your God. You will be my people. I will make you great. I will bless you. He keeps telling them, keeps reassuring them. Makes me think of, you know, sometime when you have young children and they don't believe something's going to happen or maybe they've been injured and you have to keep reassuring them over and over. I learned that God's covenants are unconditional. It doesn't matter what we do. If God has promised it, it's going to work out. We can't screw that up by the things that we do or don't do. And I learned that God is always on time. We see that in the story of the ram caught in the thicket where God stops Abraham from killing Isaac. We see that many other times throughout the scriptures. But, you know, I don't think that's enough to base a sermon on. So, as I was looking more deeply at what, what do we learn from this story, what do we learn from these stories, I noticed that God routinely chose people to carry out his promises, to carry on his covenant that we wouldn't have chosen. So, keeping that in mind, let's look at Genesis 37 more deeply. The story picks up, Joseph is 17. He has 10 older brothers, as you know. There are some schools of thought that differ on how old his older brothers were. Some of them put the timeline that his oldest brother would have been Reuben, would be about 43, and his next oldest brother would be 21, so they would range the 10 brothers from 43 to 21. Other scholars have tried to look at it and say, no, they were all born during the, the seven years or so, the, the second seven years after he uh, married both Leah and Rachel. And so then they would be all from a year older than Joseph to maybe age 24. The point is, though, that as we read the story, these older brothers are not, you know, some 14-year-old making a bad decision to sell his brother or somebody who hasn't lived enough life to understand things. These are, you know, full-grown adults that are doing things that they can think through fully. Well, we hear in this story that Jacob is the favorite. Why is that? Well, Jacob, I'm sorry, Joseph was the favorite. Why is that? Because Joseph was one of only two sons that were born to Rachel. So he had 12 sons, but only two came from that woman that he loved at first, that he wanted to marry. The other 10 came from the maidservants and from Leah. Leah had six sons. And when Rachel gave birth to Benjamin, the youngest of the 12 sons, she died in childbirth. So you can see why Jacob would have really had an affinity for those two boys, in particular the firstborn, Joseph. 
Well, he made that clear, unfortunately, as probably fathers shouldn't do, and that developed hatred with his older brothers. They didn't like Joseph. They didn't like him because daddy favored him. He gave him a coat, a special ornate coat. We somehow seem to think that it was a coat of many colors. Don't see that in scripture. I tried to find out if that's in scripture anywhere. I don't think it is, but that's all right. It makes for a good musical. And it's a really cool coat to look at on stage. But Joseph is hated by his brothers. They don't like him. They're jealous of him. So what does Joseph do to help this? Well, he comes back and tells them of these dreams God has given him. In the first dream, they're out binding sheaves of wheat, of grain in the field. Eleven of them. Probably not Benjamin. Why? Because Benjamin was, was pretty young. But actually, he's in the dream, but he wasn't out there in the field because he was somewhere between one and ten when the story happened. Well, he has a dream that they're out there binding wheat, and the sheaves stop. Joseph's sheave stands up straight, and the other eleven bow down. And the brothers say, what are you telling us? You're going to reign over us? That you're actually going to rule us? And it says in the passage that their hatred grew even more. Then he tells them the second dream, that he dreamed of the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bowing down to him. And it didn't take them long to interpret this dream. I guess maybe dream interpretations run in the family. His father immediately says, even your mother and I will bow down to you. And uh, the brothers knew that they were the stars. And it says that they were now even more jealous of Joseph. Well, his brothers go out to take care of the sheep, and they're out far away. And of course, this was long before any form of communication, certainly didn't have cell phones. And Jacob wants to know how all the brothers are doing. So he says, Joseph, will you run out to the the field, find out how they're doing, come back and give me a report? So he does that. He's running out to the field and his brothers see him coming. Well, they start plotting as soon as they see him coming. Let's take this dreamer and let's crush his dreams. Let's kill him. Let's make sure these dreams don't come true. And once again, we see sin is just rampant in God's chosen, chosen people. Remember, Jacob is now being called, starting in chapter 35 or so, sometimes being called Israel. The nation of Israel comes from that name. And the 12 sons are the 12 tribes of Israel. So these are the founding fathers of God's people. And here they are plotting to kill their brother. Well, Reuben is the oldest, and he knows that he is responsible to his father for Joseph. And he knows how much his father loves Joseph. He may not love Joseph, but he loves his father. And he doesn't want to see his father come to misery because Joseph dies. So he convinces the brothers not to kill him, but throw him in the cistern, throw him in the well. You know, if you're down in, in one of these cisterns that they had in the ancient Near East, you're not going to get out. The walls are smooth, it's deep. You're not going to find your way out of there too easily. So the brothers said, fine, we'll just leave him there, and he'll die in there. And Reuben obviously went somewhere else. Scripture doesn't say that, but later he comes back, so he must have gone somewhere. Well, the brothers are sitting there, and a group of Ishmaelites come by. Now, if the name Ishmaelite sounds familiar, it should, because it comes from Ishmael. So this group really is their second cousins, you know, maybe some of their third cousins or first cousins once removed. You know, I don't even know if they know that, but this group is coming by, and they have this great idea. Judah has this great idea. Judah, the tribe of Judah, is going to be the line of Christ. And yet, we see Judah here having this idea, let's sell Joseph instead. After all, he's our flesh and blood. We don't want him to die. Let's sell him into slavery instead. That's not as bad. So they sell him into slavery, 
and he gets carried off to Egypt. It says that he's going to go off to Egypt and he's going to work for Potiphar, who is in Pharaoh's court. He's the captain of the guard. Well, Reuben comes back, looks in the cistern. Presumably he was going to rescue Joseph, you know, maybe when his brothers weren't watching, bring him back. He looks in the cistern, he's gone, and he doesn't know what to do. So these uh, ten godly guys get together and develop a plan to deceive their father. They take his ornate coat, they kill a goat, they dip it in blood, and they bring it back to his father, to their father, and they say, well, all we found is this. I don't know if it's Joseph's or not, but, you know, maybe. And he looked at the coat, and he said, oh yeah, that's Joseph's coat. Surely he's been devoured by wild animals, and Jacob is inconsolable. And if you read the rest of the, the passages, really inconsolable for, for the rest of his life. I mean, he really never recovers from having lost Joseph, as far as he knows, dead. You see, the interesting thing is that Joseph's brothers thought they were putting an end to Joseph's dreams. Probably the really interesting thing is that they were fulfilling Joseph's dreams. They were setting into action the course of events that would actually fulfill those two dreams that he had, that they will one day come and bow down before him. Not only that, remember in Genesis 15, what did we read as God started his covenant? 400 years, the people will be enslaved. This sin that they did, the selling of Joseph, was the start leading down that path to 400 years of slavery for the descendants of these brothers. So while God's people are sinful, certainly God sometimes lets them feel the punishment from their sins. Their actions have consequences. As you probably know, Joseph went through a lot of hard times. I'm not going to go into them all because we're going to preach on several of the key chapters of Joseph's life over the next four weeks. But Joseph had a hard life. He kept doing what was right, and things kept not going well for him over and over and over until he finally succeeded, finally rose to power. But Joseph had a good view of his suffering, a view that we should have. And this is really where we start to get to the, finally get to the point where I think God has a, a really important word for us. In Genesis 45, 5 through 7, Joseph is talking to his brothers. It's 22 years later, they're reunited in Egypt, and he says to them, Do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save the lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And in the last chapter of Genesis, Joseph again talking to his brothers in chapter 50, verses 20 and 21, he says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. What a reversal of roles from the younger hated brother to now the one who is giving them a whole lot of wisdom, a whole lot of grace. 
The psalmist goes even further. I don't know if you know that, that in Psalm 105, David basically recounts the story of his ancestry of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and beyond. The 400 years, Moses and Aaron. And in Psalm 105, he takes it a step further as he views this evil, this suffering. And in verses 16 through 22, he says, He, God, called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. And he sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. The king sent and released him. The ruler of people set him free. He made him master of his household, ruler over all he possessed, to instruct his princes as he pleased and to teach his elders wisdom. David does not see any of this as an accident. He doesn't just see the good in it at the end. He's saying God ordained the selling of Joseph. God planned the famine. God ordained all of this for his glory. And I think that this is the right view for Christians to have of suffering. It's very difficult. We don't know why. We don't know how it's all going to work out. But it is the right view to believe that God is in charge of all of it, that God has a plan, that it is working out for his glory. But here, I think, is the main point of the sermon. If you're stuck in a pattern of sin, well, you're just like God's people, and God's promises are still true for you. If you're stuck in a pattern of sin, God still loves you. If you're stuck in a pattern of sin, God can still use you. You see, God's chosen people are not set apart by their righteousness. They're not set apart by being free of sin. When we look at the story of God's people from Genesis 12 to Genesis 37, we wouldn't have time to enumerate all of the lies, all of the deceit, the violence, the trickery, the distrust of God, taking matters into their own hands. Nor would we have time if we look to the future, past Genesis 37, to enumerate all of the sins of God's people as they wandered through Egypt. But in Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 6, this is what God tells his chosen people before they enter the promised land. He says, The Lord, your, I'm sorry, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers. Do not say to yourself, it says, that the Lord has brought me here because of my righteousness. He repeats again. He's going to accomplish what he swore to your fathers to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Understand then, God says, that this is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Four times in those three verses, 
God says, it is not because of your righteousness. It is not because of your righteousness. It is not because of your righteousness. You are a stiff-necked people. So for us, it's not about our righteousness either. It's about God's righteousness. It's about the righteousness of Jesus that we can share in, that we can be clothed in. That's why we are set apart as God's people. Another message from this is that if you don't feel good enough to serve God, if you don't feel that you're strong enough, that you're smart enough, that you are knowledgeable enough, that you're educated enough, you are. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 to 31, he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul again is saying, God, Christ Jesus, is our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. It's not about us. So if you ever think that you're not good enough, you are. Remember what Paul was saved from before he wrote those words. Paul was Saul. He was killing Christians. He also talks about a thorn in his flesh. Remember that Paul was shipwrecked more than once. He was hungry. He was in prison. And what do we see in the story that we recounted? God chose Isaac, not the firstborn Ishmael. God chose Jacob, not the firstborn, Esau. God used the eleventhborn in Joseph to save his people, and he carried his line to Jesus through Judah, not Reuben, the firstborn. Jesus included in his line a prostitute named Rahab. His line includes a king named David, who was the youngest of Jesse's sons, and was small and weak compared to his brothers. The disciples of Jesus included a tax collector, and that's not just like being an IRS agent today. (laughs) They were very corrupt. So if you don't think you're good enough, just read the scriptures and see the people God has used. You are. And if you, like Joseph, like he must have felt when he was in that cistern, like he must have felt when he was in prison, if you feel like you're in a pit, if you feel like you can't get out, if you feel like you're stuck in a rut, God has not abandoned you. If you know him, he is there for you. Just like Joseph, he was there for him. Continue to do the right things, and eventually, God will redeem you. It may not be on this earth, but keep your faith in God. We read the passage during worship where it tells us that God is with us in our weakness. The Spirit will utter for us in our despair. He knows our heart. And that key verse that says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called 
according to His purpose. So if you love God, if you've been called according to His purpose, then He is going to be there for you. I want to close with a quick story, hopefully quick because I'm now over time, about a guy named John. He was born in 1725 in London. His father was a sailor. His mother was a devout Christian. But she died when he was six. His stepmother sent him off to boarding school. He was mistreated. He rebelled. He ended up working on ships from the age of 11, never having a formal education. He was pressed into military service, didn't like the strictness, and was a deserter. He was humiliated. He went back to work on ships. He was known to be so profane and so vulgar that the ship captains couldn't take it. He invented new words in order to be more vulgar than the next person. His disobedience got him sent below deck and to be a prisoner on his own ships. He entered the slave trade and was bringing slaves from Africa to sell in North America. But he was often below deck with them because of his disobedience. Well, there came a time when John was on a ship that was in a tough storm and he was below deck He was above deck. He was trying everything he could with the other shipmates to keep the ship from sinking. They were running the pumps. They were bailing. And right next to him, someone was swept overboard and died. He and another mate, says, chained themselves to the pump so they couldn't be swept overboard, and they worked tirelessly for more than 11 hours to keep the ship afloat. And when all else seemed to fail, with the captain's permission, it says that he cried out to God, and said, Lord, have mercy on us. Well, they survived the storm and they went back in. And a little while later, he started reading a book called The Christian's Pattern, which was a summary of the imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And he remembered that he cried out to God, and he remembered that God had mercy on him. And he became a Christian. Well, he didn't change overnight. He continued in the slave trade for a while. He continued being vulgar, although it says that the first thing to leave him was his profanity. People started to notice a difference. After a few years, he left the life of being on ships and went back to England, married his childhood sweetheart, started studying theology, became an ordained pastor in the Church of England. It said that when he would preach in places, they would have to add on to the buildings because of all the people that would want to come hear him. And at some point after his conversion, he wrote a hymn that's called Amazing Grace, which is said to be the summary of his life. And I think the ironic thing, just like Joseph's brothers thinking they were taking his dreams away from him, they were really fulfilling him. Amazing Grace was not popular in England. It wasn't in any of the hymnals. It became popular only in the U.S., because it was sung by the slaves, the very ones that he was trading. It's amazing how God works. So let me just say in closing that if you're stuck in a pattern of sin, God's promises are still true. If you're stuck in a pattern of sin, God still loves you, and he can still use you. If you feel like you're not good enough, in Christ you are. And if you, like Joseph, feel like you're stuck in a pit, 
and nothing's going right, God has not abandoned you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these stories of our descendants of old, your people. Lord, we thank you that they are just like us, that they fail, that they sin, that they try to take matters into their own hands, that they lose trust in you. But Lord, we thank you ever so much more for your faithfulness, for your unconditional love, for your unconditional promises, and for all the great things that you do for your people. Lord, may that truth cause us to tell more people about you. Amen.